Hey guys, welcome back to the Monica Matthew Show. Life, love, and liberty. As you know, we talk about everything on this show, and I have the most amazing guests ever. Something that I have started doing recently is incorporating my spaces on Twitter with my international podcast. So I'm very grateful for people who make time uh, to come and communicate with you guys as my show guests, but also I'm loving all these folks who uh, who follow me and some of those who don't, uh, who like to chime in in Twitter spaces. It's a very cool feature. If you are a Twitter uh, participant, I highly suggest that you jump in and uh, you know it's a very easy way to test the uh, the barometer really of the country. So I highly encourage people to do that. So you're going to hear live uh, feedback tonight. You're going to hear from my guests. Who those of you who follow me on my podcast, you know he's you'll be familiar with his voice because he's been on my on my show several times. Uh, but I think it's going to be it's going to be cool to get feedback from people on Twitter in real time. I love this. Love it. Love it. Love it. It's like live radio for me, which I miss terribly. I love terrestrial radio and taking live callers because you never know what you're going to get. And last night we literally had every drunk in the UK because I was on at seven. And so everyone's leaving the pub and they all had big thoughts and lots of singing. Uh, And I'm not offended by that. I think it's kind of cool and people enjoying life. You know, we got enough stress going on in this conversation for sure can be very, very stressful regarding immigration. So tonight with me, I have got Mr. John A. Zadrozny. He is with the America First Policy Institute. He's originally from New York and serves as the director of AFPI Center for Homeland Security and Immigration. Prior to joining AFPI, uh, John served in several roles in the Trump administration, including most recently as deputy assistant to the president in the office of the senior advisor for policy. Prior to his service in Trump uh, in Trump's administration, he spent six years on Capitol Hill, which included service as counsel to both U.S. Senator Ted Cruz and House Oversight and Government Reform Committee Chairman Daryl Issa. Uh, he also previously served in George W. Bush's administration and as an assistant di- uh, district attorney with the New York County Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Uh, and it goes on and on and on and on because you know I don't have schleps on my show. And so without further ado, we're going to talk about all this stuff going on in crazy, crazy town, uh, border, immigration, Biden regime. Welcome back, John. <laughs> Hey, Monica, thanks for having me on your show. It's great to be here as always. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so thank you so much for your patience and all the technical issues we've had. I want to jump right in. I, I'm just going to ask the question that is is on most people's mind, like what the heck with this $450,000 payout? Is it real? What is it? And if it is, what is it? Who is it going to? Uh, you know, ABC seems to be throwing a lot of shade to the Trump administration with regard to uh, separated people. You have covered a lot of this ground on previous shows of mine with regard to what separated uh, individuals actually mean. So if you don't mind, just go for it. And then we'll hear from some people who want to ask you questions. Yeah, sure. So uh, in short, Monica, this is something, uh, whether it's going to happen or not, has yet to be shown. But I think 
it's something they really do want to do. The whole thing, the way it came into public consciousness is sort of a metaphor for the way this administration operates, um, which is that it came out that for those who have not been aware of this, um, it, it got out into the public that the Biden administration was considering uh, settling some of the family se- so-called family separation cases back from 2018 uh, by giving each of the separated individuals um, $450,000 per person as a, as a settlement to a legal, uh, potential legal case, um, which was brought by the, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union or the ACLU. Um, Biden was at, President Biden was asked about that. He said, no, 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 that's not happening. That's ridiculous. Uh, then the ACLU came out and said, we beg to differ. We've been talking to your Department of Justice and White House about it. Um, then when after he you know, received some medication, he came out and said, no, no, we're definitely doing that. And then he started yelling at reporters, uh, including, I believe, Mr. Ducey for Fox News, who actually asked the question saying, well, this contradicts what you had told us earlier. Um, the, the whole thing is, is disgusting. I mean, especially in this time when mm-hmm. we are spending more money than we actually have um, to then slather uh, payment on people who were entering illegally and breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you consider on top of that, it's incredibly insulting in the sense that that dollar amount, that $450,000 per person that they're proposing, that's, as far as I'm aware, that's more than most of the settlement payments to the, the families of the victims of 9-11. Uh, that's more than a family member receives from the passing of a family member who's in the armed forces and right. dies in combat. That's right. Uh, it, it's disgusting, um, and it's wrong on so many levels. And you know, the immigration—just to get back to the immigration side of it, Monica—there, there should be a true disincentive for coming here illegally. And the minute, you know, as if this administration, the Biden administration, has not slathered enough incentive for illegal aliens to come here right. by the hundreds of thousands, you then throw. Well, if if we screw up in the course of interacting with you, we're going to throw a six-figure settlement payment on top of that, right. that is in no way discouraging more and more illegal immigration. The, the administration and Secretary Mayorkas and President Biden, they all tried to spin this by saying, well, no, this is just a settlement for what happened in 2018. That doesn't matter. Nobody really hears that. All anyone hears is, oh, if I try and get through the border and they screw up somehow, I'm going to make it rich in America because they're going to pay me a lot of money from the Treasury. That's right. Um, and so the whole thing is a mess, but it's very, you know, this is standard fare for this administration, which is American citizens are last, foreign nationals, but they want to get amnesty or first, and everything they do flows from that. I mean, you, Monica, you and I have talked before about this. Sure. I think there are people who, when they see what's unfolding in front of their eyes in this country, and they say, gosh, I can't believe they're doing so poorly. I encourage anyone who thinks that way to get focused on this. This is all designed. This is a policy design. This is what they want to happen. They want hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of legal aliens here on top of the 30 million legal aliens who are already here so they can, with a stroke of a pen, give them all amnesty and citizenship and overcome your vote. Sure. So um, that's why a lot of this is so egregious to you and me. But I think you know most Americans are so focused on their day-to-day and then they hear the story and they say – Gosh, they don't know what they're doing. No, no, they know exactly what they're doing, and it's trying to undercut your voice. Thank you, and and thank you so much for being one of the few people 
who will actually say that out loud, right? So I see Laura Ingram, who tweets just last week, and God love Laura, right? But she's she's kind of mocking, right? Which we all do to, to one extent or another, to one degree or another. But she's mocking with this um, incompetent, incompetent, incompetent. She's got like different pictures of people from this regime, um, uh, you know, on the tweet. And, and it's this incompetency campaign. And, and I see that as just nothing more than the rights blow Aviation, you know, this this perpetual need for sanctimony, which does no one any favors at all. It does not move any ball down the field whatsoever. But it's this sanctimonious, we're better than them, right? They're just dumb. They're just incompetent. And I read that stuff and it sets me ablaze because I'm like, no, this is actually part of a geopolitical landscape that absolutely has, uh, you know, has a hundred year or at least the past 40 year uh, reach of, of, of implication that this has been on the move. This is nothing new. This didn't just begin with the Biden administration. Um, you know, and people are not dumb. They're not incompetent. They're actually quite on purpose. So thank you for being a person who is in a position of, of authority and leadership who will actually actually own that before I go to uh, uh, to our first question so I want to I want to read something to you guys so we've got I'm reading from where am I patch.com okay Custer and Pappas back Biden build back uh, plan adding billions in debt benefits uh, in debt and benefits uh, for illegals okay which is exactly what we're talking about and so I'm going to read something to you uh, it says under the Trump administration recipients of the monthly child tax credit checks 300 bucks per child under age 6 250 for each child ages 6 to 17 had to have social security numbers under the build back better bill passed by Custer and Pappas that requirement is gone allowing many more people in the U.S. illegally to collect the taxpayer-funded benefit. And to your point about amnesty, this and, I, and listen, don't get off this call tonight without drawing the same conclusions for these folks and drawing the parallels, rather, to what you've done on my previous shows with you about what the ultimate goal is between amnesty and life. Okay, so don't so put that in your cap. Let's not forget that. But this goes on to say the bill also includes a 10 a 10-year amnesty light program in the form of work permits, social security numbers, eligibility for welfare benefits, and the ability to get a driver's license for some 4 to 6 million illegal immigrants, which we know is that is way off base. Uh, it is the largest mass legalization according to the Washington Post. Huh. program for undocumented integrant uh, undocumented immigrants in the US history and quote so you know you're talking about 20 to 30 million people these guys are still at 4 to 6 million um you know it's it's i read these things and i go are you trying to push Americans out into the street into a civil war? Because you are dealing with people who are done, absolutely toast done with this government handing out, you know, and invading the country effectively. So hold that thought about what I just mentioned, uh, John, about the correlation that you've made between amnesty and life itself. Okay, so let's go to the first person with their hand up, which is um, Based Man AF. What's going on? I have a I have a little bit of a larger question. Like, do you think like that all this going on about about, about how like how Biden is, is supposedly like paying 450 million. No, no, not 450 million. Let's not go too far. Um, 450 thousand 
Like, you think this is going to, like, wake up? Is, is this, you think this is going to be a move that is going to red pill, like, a lot of people and just, or, I, we already know the red tsunami is coming, but, like, do you think it's going to cause, like, a red tsunami of, like, 1994 proportions, being that so many people could be, like, red pilled by this? You know, that's a great question. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm kind of cynical when it comes to the effect of any one thing on the American consciousness. Like, I think uh, maybe Americans are more awake than they were 36-odd years ago when, uh, when you know, that the Republicans won control of the House and the Senate for the first time uh, in a really long time. Um, I don't know how much this one thing will have as an impact, but I do think every time, honestly, I think the things that have more of an impact on people's reaction are the things that affect them in everyday life. Um, like, for example, uh, immigration is really tough to show how it impacts a lot of people's lives because not everyone lives on the border, right? Not everyone lives where you see uh, people coming on your lawn in the daytime waiting for the border patrol to pick them up, and then you see guys in camo crossing your lawn in the middle of the night. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of people are going to experience the fallout from this, but when you start adding up all the numbers, it's a lot of money. I think people realize, they realize it resonates with them that you know, the government will go after you. The IRS will go after any one of us if we fail to pay $40, if there's like a $40 gap on our tax payment in April. They will chase you down, and they will go after you for interest, and you will possibly face jail time, and there will be penalties. But if you're an illegal alien who tries to run the border – and they separate you from a child that's not actually yours. I'll get to that in a second. Then they say, oops, we're really sorry. Here's some money. Um, that resonates with people. The idea that, you know, maybe the dollar figure gets a little blurry in the, in the, the you know, this vast amount of money the federal government spends these days. But the idea that they'll, they'll go after you, Hammer, for not, for not paying $40 in taxes, but they'll give an illegal alien a six-figure payout for trying to break our laws. Hopefully that does resonate. Um, and I, I, Monica... Uh, just on the, the, I wanted to get to what you mentioned before because I think it's an important thing for yeah. the context of the, why amnesty is so important to the left. I really do think almost everything you see coming from the left right now is geared toward reclaiming the ability to actually win elections and maintain power. Um, so for me, amnesty, the way I look at it is, um, it turns out when you spend the last 50 years aborting Americans in the womb, you're short about 60 million voters. And that is the sort of thing that Democrats don't talk about in public. You know, they're not, they're shrill, they're loud, and everyone thinks they're the majority because they're so shrill and loud. The reality is, though, I think in quiet rooms when we're not there, <laughs> they see the demographic disaster happening to them. They are short, you know, tens of millions of Americans who would have voted for them, but for the fact that they killed them for money. And so they've got to find those votes. You've got, and so you've got two choices when you're not winning elections, right? You've either got to uh, change your views to accommodate the American public, or you've got to go out and find new voters. The left has clearly chosen the latter. They've clearly gone out to try and find new voters. To me, the way I look at it, that's what amnesty is about. They've basically gone on a global voter importation project, promises of goodies in exchange for citizenship, banking on the fact that they'll vote for them. Uh, not to jump into a wildly different subject, but... I think that's what critical race theory and the radicalization of schools is about. Mm -hmm. You know, if the left isn't having enough of its own kids, they'll just steal yours in school. Amen. Um, there's a sense of an ideological fire sale. Like when you watch the way the left talks, everything goes, anything goes. They need voters. This is not a party that's confident about its future. This is a party that's terrified about the future. And then you sprinkle a little bit of election fraud over all of that just to sort of cover your bases in certain places they used to own. 
and I sense the dam breaking. I, I can't prove it. It's my gut. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to show a sense of they know they're losing and they keep, instead of just taking a step back, like most of us in our lives, when we do something really bad or we, we're making mistakes, we take a step back and we say, gosh, you know, maybe we should rethink this. The left doesn't ever do that. They double down, they triple down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're seeing that all over the country in different immigration and other issue spaces. Uh, they just keep pushing. Uh, right. Yeah, and you've seen it firsthand. I mean, you're in Virginia, and I've had you know we've talked about that on previous shows as well with you. I mean, talk about the Wild West. I mean, it is insane how we have weaponized our own national security apparatus. It is, um, it, it is. You know, I'm dealing with parents here in Georgia who are afraid that they're going to wake up to a battering ram at their front door because they've exchanged. And listen, these are parents in private school dealing with headmasters and these people pay 30 to 40 grand a year to be abused by their own, uh, you know, leadership in school um, who's effectively, you know, brainwashing their kids every day. So I'm like, well, as far as I'm concerned, you have a couple of choices, like find another school or homeschool. You know, I mean, you're going to become the Matthews Academy, which I did. I did. Uh, so I'm a huge advocate of homeschool, but I realize not everyone can do that. But it it is a very, it needs to be uh, a more viable option. So, okay, I heard you. I want to get to some more questions, but I want you to keep a couple of those things like, okay, about the life. I do want to revisit that. And I also want you to spend some time educating us on what it means technically Okay, as you being an immigration expert, what does it mean with with regard to separation, right? And then who is a lot of that funneling through and why? I want to get to that, but first I want to get to some folks with their hands up. Casey, go for it, hon. So we talked about this on another space and uh, it, before this. And, you know, with the Afghanistan issue, we moved 200,000 people in 10 days to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of these People are going up to Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, and uh, a, command, a colonel that's currently in South Africa, he brought up the fact that there's a lot of Democrat push for people that they've been moving leftists in the military there, and they've been doing surveys of non-combatant evacuations, NEOs, and that they can basically cause a issue in a foreign country there in Africa load up all these people, promise them the world, fly them to the U.S., and then they've just increased their voter base. So it's exactly the plan you laid out. But what it's doing is instead of people rushing the border, we're bringing them here under the guise that there's a disaster and they need to seek refuge here. And uh, how does that sound to you versus what you said before? Uh, Casey, you nailed it. I mean, that's exactly what, I would say is happening. That's exactly what's happening south of our border. Um, you know, it's always funny. I, uh, I'll get to Afghanistan in a second. That was a great point. Uh, it deserves more exploration. But you'll notice, like, whenever you hear or see video footage of these caravans, for example, that you always get these nice still shots of women with kids in their arms. Everyone's really clean, by the way, and really neatly dressed, even though they've all walked 2,000 miles, right? <laughs> um, and, and then what you find out, though, is that when you talk to law enforcement, when you talk to people who are on the ground, you realize how heavily staged all of that is. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is the vast majority of people crossing our border legally and illegally, Ill, sorry, try saying that five times again, legally <laughs> and illegally are 15 to 45 
eight-year-old men, um, not even necessarily of, of Central and South American origin. We have no idea who these people are. We really don't. Um, and that's, that population is being driven through a variety of means, um, including George Soros funding NGOs that are pushing these people coming up here. Um, and there's, it's not, a, you know, that's one thing I don't want to get too into the weeds with your audience, but um, asylum, you know, there's a lot of talk about how people are seeking asylum and they're refugees and blah, blah, blah. Asylum is a very specific concept. It requires persecution. So it requires, for example, you know, you're a Christian and you live in a Muslim country and they're going to kill you or your family or they're threatening you, you leave. Or you live in a Central American country and you're a pro-democracy advocate and the dictatorship there is threatening your family, they're trying to kill you, you want to leave. Amnesty is designed for persecution. Amnesty is not designed for, gosh, I live in a bad neighborhood or gosh, we, our GDP was not great last quarter. None of those people is eligible for amnesty, for asylum. Um, and yet we have an obligation legally to process every ap- asylum application. We can't turn people away. We have to process their application. That doesn't mean they have to come to the country. That means we have to process it. So that push is just it's, it's a burden on us whether or not any of these people ultimately are allowed to be allowed to stay. Now, in the Trump administration where I worked, there was a process. They put a couple of things in place to make sure you couldn't come in until you had your asylum hearing and you only got to stay if you were approved. That reduced a lot of fraud because people realized, well, I can't just get into the country. I have to actually prove I have an asylum claim. And the fraudsters turned around. It had a huge impact. The minute Joe Biden walked into office, they put up a neon sign saying, come on in. And that's what happened. But to your original point, Casey, these people are not suffering from some global crisis. They're just being pushed here. They're coming here for their own reasons, none of which necessarily justify their being here. In Afghanistan, you have an entirely different situation. You have basically a national security catastrophe that was created by the Biden administration's catastrophic withdrawal. And what they did was, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but there was this big debate about should they use Bagram Air Base as the, the departure point which would have given them more security. The answer is yes, I think. Um, most experts would probably say that. Instead of using Kabul Air, uh, Airport, which was then sort of under siege the whole time and created huge issues. Well, what they, they wanted the chaos, you know, getting back to the theme of the way they function, so they could say, we don't have time, and just stuff 150,000 people who we don't know who they are onto planes. Um, meanwhile, while leaving Americans behind, who no longer matter to this administration. Um, what I think, you mentioned Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. Uh, I believe there's also Fort Bliss in Texas. Um, I, I live in Virginia, so near Dulles Airport, so they've, they've sent a lot of these individuals to the Dulles Expo Center. Um, I believe also Fort Dix in New Jersey and several, several other places. Um, I believe all Army bases. Um, they're just dumping these people of, who are of unknown origin into these bases, and then they're disappearing into the public. Now, one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is um, these are not people who've been vetted. These Thank you. Literally... Hold on, stop. Please say that again. Yeah, so the, the 100 to 150,000, and the number actually may be higher at this point. I don't have the number, but they were literally just stuffed onto planes. These people have not been vetted. Unreal. There's no, we have no idea who a lot of these people are. These are, uh, these are not, you may have heard, there's, a pro, there's something called the Special Immigrant Visa Program or the SIV program. This mm-hmm. is a very touchy subject. A lot of men and women who fought overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq will sing the praises of the interpreters who worked with them, and they'll try to get them over here under that SIV program. Mm-hmm. The SIV program had some flaws, but compared to what happened last a couple months ago, 
it was a perfect program <laughs> because at least there was a baseline of vetting done by the individuals who at least on paper were helpful to us. Mm-hmm. This, these people were literally just stuffed into planes. And so I think the American public needs to know this isn't just a generic concern. We hope these people are safe. Many of these people, um, you know, we are opening the door to a, a, when you don't vet people from countries and let people into the tune of 100 to 150,000, you're asking for trouble. And we've already seen a little bit of it. I believe at Fort McCoy in particular, um, there were a couple of sexual assaults on minors by uh, adult men. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm pretty sure there was a similar incident uh, in Fort Bliss. Uh, you're going to see, there, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm getting the state wrong, I'm pretty sure the governor of Montana um, basically has said he wants out of the uh, Afghan resettlement program because one of the guys that they sent to Montana raped a little girl. Oh, um, now, that th- I don't want to pick on these individual cases. I want to make a broader point. There are some cult- The reason we, we vet is for security and public safety. There are some cultural issues in Afghanistan that we have refused to acknowledge, even in the 20 years that we were in Afghanistan. Um, and I'm just going to give them very light treatment. One is child marriage. Um, that is not okay here. It is not okay in Western civilization. It is not okay under our laws. But it's all too common in Afghanistan. And I, my, I've heard through the grapevine that there have been more than a few of these child marriages who've been detected on these military bases and the military security are being told to stand down on them. Don't deal with it. Don't say a word. There are guests. I'm not mm-hmm. kidding. Um, another thing, that female genital mutilation happens yep. quite a bit in the Middle East. It happens in Afghanistan. Right. People who think this is okay are here now to the tune of God knows how many, but you know, six figures worth of people somewhere in there. There are people who think this practice is okay. There's another one which is I don't get too graphic because this is a family show. But um, there's a practice called baka bazi, um, and so it turns out in a lot of like radical Islamist, sexually oppressed countries, uh, since men can't look at women, they dress little boys up as women and have relations with them. Lord have mercy. This is a real thing. Yeah. I, I'm not making this yeah, up. Yeah, no, I know. And so. These and three I can, things, though, I can, I can actually vouch for you and back that up. That's true. Hey, hey so, guys, uh, I actually work at the border, and I have a dire warning for all of you conservatives. Dire warning. Okay, wait. Who is that? Who is that? Do, do me a favor. So raise your hand if you want to speak. I, I want John to finish his thought, and I'm happy to come back to you. But do me a favor and just give me give me a minute. Cool. Thank you. Um, yeah. So Casey, um, Casey, why don't you tell John a little about a little bit about you and you know kind of your position on this in this terrain? Yeah, John. John I'm a uh, retired special operator, and uh, I'm a former CIA officer. I worked in Iraq extensively, and all every war zone we've been in Philippines, Africa, all around. So, uh, what you're talking about. Thank you very much. No, thank you for paying your taxes so that we could serve. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, the, uh, the, one of the worst things I think for special operations, because we deal on smaller bases with people is us having to have direct contact with these people and understanding. And we, we uh, call these boys chai boys, and uh, mm-hmm. the, wor- the worst offenders are the local police, and it, it just, it's really horrible thing, and uh, it, I can tell you to the point that when I was in Iraq in 2009 and 10, the chief of police in Baghdad used to drop his eight-year-old son off with me at the gate of the green zone every morning, and a group of us would babysit him, like he would hang out with us and so that we could protect his son while he was working from these types of things happening to his own son or any mm-hmm. retaliation. And uh, 
it's the wor- the one thing you know in my opinion the, the worst thing you could possibly do is children are our most valuable resource and harming children is by far the worst transgression that you can commit as a human being and uh so don't don't think for a minute that none of us did that we failed to do anything about it because we did and but we were heavily restricted just like you said and told that it wasn't our business to push into what their culture was and that it was just part of their culture and we needed to deal with it so hold yeah, on so john how is that even legal how how is that legal here on this soil how, how well, is this so the, legal the, this is the intersection of all of the insanity we've been discussing casey's what casey said is everything i've i've heard that basically my understanding is that um military brass for the last 20 years basically prevented uh military uh, or law you know military mm-hmm. police engagement on this subject even in circumstances where it was pretty clear an abuse was happening and the pentagon justified it by not interfering in cultural issues cultural preferences whatever you want to call it right. um in fact if i'm not mistaken casey you may know the answer to this i believe there's been at least one probably many more but at least one court martial of uh i don't know if he was a marine or not but someone who intervened in one of these instances was brought up on uh, military charges for doing so yeah there's been many people that have been brought up on charges and i i could personally tell you of one that i know and watched occur mm. yeah so that's a grotesque abdication on our part but we can't go back in time and fix that sure. I, I think though what happens is when you when you ignore when you don't try and help a society improve like i i just i can't fathom that anyone on this call would think that was okay it then becomes a whole different situation when you stuff all those people on planes and bring them here. That's right. And so, no, not not everyone on those planes is a dangerous, vile person or bad person. Many are probably in need of relief. I'm sure um, they'll go become part of communities and be helpful. Sure. But, you know, one thing that I think your audience needs to understand is these types of the, the, the vile list of people we just discussed, um, the Bakabaziers and so on, they're not waiting around for the Taliban. And I'm not making excuses for the Taliban, but, um, you know, when Taliban rose to power in the 1990s. They rolled through towns and executed the child rapists. Right, and it's kind of like so. I grew, I grew up in New York, Monica. So right. like everyone, everyone, everyone talks about the neighborhoods where the mafia used to be in charge. Sure. And like everyone, kind of gave lip service to how the mafia was bad, but they also sort of shrugged and said, "Hey, but the neighborhoods are safe." Yep. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Right. It's like people are they're, they're not going to justify what they they know happens, but they they took comfort in the security, and I think. That was probably part of the Taliban's rise. I'm not an expert on it. I don't want to get into it. I will tell you those people are not, they were not waiting around for them to come back for them. Mm-hmm. They were getting on those planes. And unfortunately, what this means is we're going to find out slowly but surely over the march of time, there's going to be a child rape here. There's going to be a child murder there. There's going to be FGM here. And it's going to be someone who was on those planes that we didn't bother to talk to before we put them on the plane. One other thing, Monica, I don't want to change yeah. subjects, but it's really important. You know, we're seeing, you know, we, we, we hear the government, when the government doesn't want to do something, it tells us it can't be done. When the government wants to do something, though, just watch how it snaps to attention. Mm-hmm. Look how quickly they stopped 150,000 foreign nationals from Afghanistan who hadn't been screened on the planes because they wanted it done. That's right. Look how quickly they've harassed the private sector across the country on the vaccine mandates. Look how quickly they've gotten that done. Right. When government wants to do something, government can get it done. So I want each of you who thinks whenever you hear someone say, well, it's impossible to deport 30 million people, it's really actually not. If we actually used all the tools we had at our disposal, it could be done in three months. 
Yep. That's a very good point. Um, okay. Well, and you got to love, you know, DHS's, um, yeah, and listen, I have friends who work for DHS and they're awesome people and I love them. But, but I, but the whole marketing strategy behind, look at us. It's always like this lovely woman in uniform, right? And then a little girl and her mom and it's called the resettlement program. And aren't we wonderful? We're resettling all these poor refugees. And like you said, sure, there are uh, many, lots of poor refugees, right? But like you said, uh, that we are, ha- we're going to, we're in the process of an, of a massive cultural shift. And that is a problem because we do not encourage people to assimilate and we have not encouraged people to assimilate in this country for decades. And that is a problem. Although, you know, a lot is a problem. All right. I'm going to go to some other folks who have their uh, hands up. Uh, forgive me, guys, if I if I go out of order, I don't mean to. Um, let me go over to uh, SS Eric. Hey, Don. Hey. I got a I got a, a question. Do you think, um, given that L- Latinos are God fearing um, against abortion, uh, mainly things that the right is for, do you think at the end of the day that this could backfire on the left, um, given what's gone on with the swing towards Trump with the Latino population? Eric, that is a great question, and I, I, I think the short answer, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit because it's worth it. I think the, the short answer is it's it's not that simple because I don't necessarily think that just because um, most Hispanics, and by the way, they are far from a uniform block, which is another thing nobody wants to talk about. You know, a Cuban isn't a Venezuelan, isn't a Mexican, isn't a Puerto Rican, and they will tell you that. Yep, you they sure them. will, um, <laughs> and not so, so nicely but, either. Um, <laughs> yeah, like a... The thing that always – I want to answer a question because it's a really good one. Here's why I don't necessarily think um, it could backfire the way you think or as quickly as you think. One is the left never does anything that could accidentally benefit the right. They've thought this out. Like they are – they would not work to get millions upon millions upon millions of people into this country in the in, 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 if they were there was any risk at all that they'd wind up voting Republican or something else. It just wouldn't happen. Two – while I think you're correct to point out that most, you know, mo- for example, most of cent- most Central and South Americans are uh, is- Hispanic, um, and they, uh, you know, they speak Spanish. And many are Catholic, not all, but many. Um, there's an assumption that they'll be, uh, you know, more conservative. Well, I'm Catholic. We live in a country where 25 percent of the country is Catholic, and we're all over the map, like ranging from some of the biggest liberals and pro-abortionists in the world, uh, all the way down the most conservative people. So I don't think that's going to save us because I don't see that uniformity of block in the church today. Uh, Three, I think you have to remember something else. It's not necessarily about how you live your daily life. It's about the benefits you get when you get here. And so you've got to figure that a lot of people, regardless of what they, you know, whether their view is on abortion, whether they oppose abortion or they're socially conservative, the reality is a party is going to be perceived and then marketing itself as the reason they were able to get all these benefits and that's going to yield a political benefit for decades to come. Four, and this is almost as important as the others, you know, take the cons- you can take the social conservative dimension to some of these people who are coming from these countries aside. The reality is a lot of these people already come from, they come from, the way I would put it is, soft dictatorships that are used to giving a lot of things to their people, right? Mm-hmm. So 
they're more of a natural mold for the Democrat Party, and I don't anticipate anything. I don't anticipate them getting here and all of a sudden joining the Federalist Society. Like I just, right. it's just not going to happen. <laughs> right. And so, like I think, your, uh, Eric, your instincts are good. It's a good question. It's actually what, your thought is the reason why I think a lot of Republicans fall for the siren song of amnesty. They think, mm-hmm. well, you can see it in their eyes. They're like, well, we'll benefit more from this. We'll benefit more from this at least eventually. Uh, you know, I don't know what eventually means. 20 years may be too late for us to write the ship here. Right. Um, but even if it is true, eventually, I don't think it's as true as you think. I think it's going to be more of a disparate group. You're going to have to take into account the different politics and um, social cultures of all the different countries these people come from. Some of them range from like fully democratic and very prosperous to eh. And so mm-hmm. that's what you're inheriting. You know, and it's not like, by the way, this, would, this might be a different conversation if we were talking about people from these countries coming here legally through the proper sure. legal channels where they have to get a legal permanent – they have to get their legal permanent residency. And they have to stay here. And they have to undergo education, and then they have to seek naturalization where they'll learn a little bit. And maybe in the course of that process, they'll say, oh, yeah, this country is kind of what I believe. I believe in these principles. That's not happening. They're just being brought in given some benefits, and then you know the Democrat Party is going to do a dance at the end of all this and saying, we're the reason you got all this, so you're going to vote for us, right? Right, right. Good point, good point. Okay, thanks, guys. So for those of you who are – I see your requests, and I can only have so many people in the queue at a time. Casey, please do not go anywhere. I'm going to keep you in the speaker queue. Um, and, John, obviously, you're not going anywhere. So for those of you who have just joined us, we're, we're speaking with – uh, a former Trump administration senior policy advisor regarding immigration and homeland security, who's currently now uh, the director of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration at the America First Policy Institute. I just read all of that without even reading a single thing from your bio. How about that? Thanks, Monica. Yeah, obviously, we've had a few conversations, and this is very, this is a very important conversation. And thank you, thank you for making yourself accessible. I mean, I'm serious. I cannot thank you enough for that. Um, And I know a lot of people. My pleasure. Oh, yeah. Well, because I have a lot of people who try to, you know, blow me up for, hey, can we come on? I want to talk about this, talk about that. But it's all about their particular agenda. And sometimes I feel people don't have, you know, this this deeply rooted uh, passion and knowledge, right? Knowledge is very important, especially dispelling disinformation, misinformation. And so I'm not an immigration expert. I'm just your average voter who has her own opinion about illegal immigration. And so thank you. I really appreciate your, you know, giving us access to you and your knowledge. For those of you waiting, just hang patient with me. Um, I'm going to click over here to some other people. Please keep, if you just have a comment, you're welcome to comment but keep it, you know, to like a minute, 30 seconds or less. Um, And then if you have questions, go for it. So next person up is unknown. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for letting me speak. I work at the border. I'm a truck driver, all right? I'm all over the border all the time. I speak five languages, uh, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, French, German, and every, you know, I can understand what people are saying from all over the continents of this world when they come through the border. And let me tell you something. Every single person that I talk to, as well as people inside the Mexican government, are interrogating these people coming into the U.S., and they're paying a lot of money. I stay at most of the hotels by the border, and they're giving free hotels to stay. They're giving, mm-hmm. uh, they're giving free car rentals. They just pack the car rentals and go to California. California is providing them a driver's license without any documentation. They can just write up their names 
And then not only that, they're giving them jobs all over the U.S., New Jersey, New York, and every other blue state you can think of, and especially Florida as well. They're getting jobs everywhere and sponsorships all over this nation by the Democratic plantation. It's a plantation, folks. Do not let your guard down. These people are organized criminals. They are organized criminals. I work with the trucking industry for years now, and what I'm what I'm talking to a lot of other drivers and people across the border, that this the organized criminal enterprise that's trying to uh, create a surplus of workforce, make wages unbearable for the living condition for the average American to live under, and then on top of that, they're taking all the jobs away, and then they're shipping everything overseas so that they can consolidate power over the workforce and destroy this nation. This hybrid warfare through population, uh, you know, allocation from different places of the world. And I don't want to take so much time from you guys, but this is all the information that I got from hundreds and hundreds of people that I talk across the border. And this is a crime. There's no amnesty going on. There's no immigration going on. This is a hybrid warfare. This is warfare. And the military and the federal government and all these CIA analytical, uh, you know, studies, and they do, they're not, they don't speak the language to begin with, so they don't understand what these people are saying and their intention inside this nation. Right. They don't know what the Constitution is. They don't know what human rights is. And they're given everything, everything you can think of under the book, hotels, cars, jobs, everything. And then they get to vote on the top of that with their little license that they get from California and everywhere else in, in, in this nation. Right. This is organized crime. And thank you guys for letting me Thank speak. you so much. No, we appreciate you greatly. Thank you, sir. Um, okay, John, what's your yeah, answer to that? Well, I want to thank Unknown for his comment. And almost everything he said was true, except for one thing. He said there was there were free car rentals, free hotels. They're not free. Nothing's free. You and me Hello. are paying for those things. <laughs> exactly. The American taxpayer is paying for every one of those goodies that's being handed out. Um, but everything else he said is 100% correct in the sense that um, they are there's there's a lot of money being made yeah. uh, behind this. Yeah. Um, perhaps the only industry that's really done well under Joe Biden is the trans hemispheric human trafficking industry, yep. and human smuggling industry. Yeah, they're doing pretty well. Um, and so, um, one thing I I, I want to add. There's nothing really to add to what he said because it was spot on. I would just add a couple quick things though. Okay. Um, I I still keep in touch with some border patrol agents and some folks who work on the border. And, um, you know, they're, they're demoralized beyond compare and right. they tell me all sorts of stories. But one of the things that always resonates with me is every now and then one of the most say, you know, we, we came across this guy, group of guys who were supposedly from Honduras and, you know, all the border patrol agents speak Spanish. Uh, so they're all chatting with these guys. And right. Every now and then they'll get into a conversation where they'll get about three sentences deep in Spanish and then those guys don't speak anymore. Well, it turns out it's because that's Spanish isn't their native language. Their native language is Farsi. Uh, oh Arabic wow! Or right, right. These are these are people. They have they have mastered the, the this this movement has become a national security Trojan horse. And the answers about what when the problems will eventually start to manifest, we won't know until right. another time. Right. Um, but this is part of what they're seeing. And Monica, you and I have talked in the past. One last thing on this point. Sure. Um, Speaking of things that the federal government's giving these people, uh, they are literally giving them pieces of paper, getting them onto planes without IDs. We've talked about this. I I saw this firsthand when I was in Del Rio in June, uh, and it turns out that this was something that we knew was happening. We were told it was happening. 
none of us really believed it. We were a little skeptical, but then we were sitting in an airport. And we watched this happen with a family from Uganda where they didn't have any IDs, but they showed a piece of paper with a signature on it. It was something from DHS. It let them not only get their boarding passes, but it let them go through TSA screening. Now, you and I can't get on a plane without showing our dental records. That's right. So <laughs> the, 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 the double standard is just insulting and grotesque. Sure. And everyone was trying to figure out what was in those envelopes. Um, Representative Lance Gooden from Texas, his office actually just recently did an exclusive story where they got their hands on one of these envelopes from Whistleblower. Mm-hmm. And it was all sorts of goodies, including letters letting, basically authorizing by DHS people to get on planes without ID or passports. Yeah. Um, references to companes and banks that will help them out when they get into the United States. Like, I'm not kidding. This is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, can so, you imagine? You, wow. Yeah. I, every one of the Americans on this call should really think about, like, the degree to which their government is really no longer serving them as the priority. Um, Amen. This really is an America last administration. I've never seen anything like it. Right. America last. That's exactly right. Uh, good points. Thank you. Okay. Uh, moving over to uh, someone with their hand up for a minute. I've got rising serpent. Thanks for joining us. What's your question for John? Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Okay. So um, I'll just speak from, you know, perspective of someone who's, who's a first generation, fresh off the boat and myself, you know, I, came to the United States like 20 years ago. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've lived uh, the American dream. And, you know, listening to what is being said, I, I the thing I, I really want to add is that the th- there's a deliberate push towards preventing assimilation, right? As, mm-hmm. as someone who comes from a country, any country, especially a country that's not a first world country. There's a yawning gap between America and any other country. And the whole entire system is designed to basically prevent the vector is actually against the direction of assimilation, right? So when you, you, you go to places in New York, um, th- this is, you know, this actually happened. I used to live in New York. And the guy who um, who owned the bodega was an Arabic guy who spoke Spanish more fluently than the Hispanics <laughs> speak English, right? Because that's the entrepreneurial, you know, that's that's the entrepreneurial spirit, right? Uh, and the entire system is really designed to prevent people from assimilating into the mainstream, and it is in many ways it's the modern form of linguistic segregation, right? I mean, if you sequester people within communities that resemble exactly the kind of oppressive tyrannies they came from, you will control them almost as well as whatever place they came from. And uh, most of the people that come into the United States will always come into communities that are typically not well-to-do. And this is especially true for people that are coming from third world countries. And a lot of these people will end up staying within the confines of those communities, uh, especially if English is not their first, second, or third language, right? I mean, everything is press, you know, press one for English, uh, pressione dos para español, right? So, I mean, you basically, uh, there's no reason to ever understand or assimilate. And then you, if you watch Spanish uh, language programming, there's a specific bent. Everything is catered towards keeping people within the shadows, and if they're legal, 
right? I mean, it doesn't really have to be legal. Even if they're legal, it's almost designed to encapsulate people within a mindset. This is programming. This is mental programming. And mm-hmm. as someone who's, who has moved from New York City to a very nice neighborhood, I, I work my ass off. I've lived the American dream. But most Americans don't realize that for an immigrant to get assimilated, for someone who's highly educated, who speaks English, for them to understand Americana takes a decade or two. There's Mm -hmm. no hope for people who don't speak English. There's no hope for people who don't leave the confines of these these segregated communities where they're, you know, they're held within, you know, this the the sociopolitical system will tell them things that are absolutely untrue, right? I mean, half of my family mm-hmm. is Hispanic. Some of the stuff that they say, I'm like, where are you reading this shit from? <laughs> like, who's mm-hmm. telling you this? Uh-huh. The amount of disinformation is, is incredible. It wow. is incredible, you know? Hey, and, Mr. Serpent, where where in New York are you from? Because I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm a Brooklyn native. Well, I, I, I was... I lived in Manhattan, and okay. um, and then you know I I'd go up to the Bronx to um, to visit my girlfriend, and it was just it, it, it's it's been you know really it's been really interesting watching how especially you know especially Spanish Harlem, and it's so it's so fascinating how all the Puerto Ricans would slowly move away from Spanish Harlem and they'd be replaced by Dominicans, and those guys would move away, and it, it's just a whole social cultural melting pot assimilation and how the people who succeed succeed beautifully and there's still people who've been living in the same neighborhood for 20 years and just watching them it's just it's it's beautiful but it also breaks my heart because i'm like you know we all could do better if if we all assimilated because this is a it's a beautiful country and it really there's nothing you can't do you're only constrained and restrained by where your imagination can go yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, go ahead, Monica. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to thank him for, for chiming in. I appreciate it. Now, go ahead. Go ahead and, 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 and give your retort. Every, everything he said is true. And I, you know, I, I'm struck by, he, he made me think about my time in New York, which was much of my life. And New York was, to me, was proof that assimilation works. Like you had people from all walks of life that really just wanted to be part of something else. And that's kind of a smaller version of America. And I've always thought of that. The left has fought really hard to do two things. They fought really hard to turn the word assimilation into a four-letter word, and they fought hard to maintain the ghetto. Like, I really do think they they need, as uh, the caller just said, about keeping people separated, keeping people isolated. You know, you want people at ethnic enclaves so you don't see what's going on in other parts of society. Your eyes aren't really – you're not really any different. You're not really any better off than you were in some respects than you were when you were in the country you fled if you stick to an ethnic enclave, right? That's right. Um, but I, I think what makes America beautiful is people come from all over the place. And, you know, the left never talks about, um, they always talk about welcoming people and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. All of that is important. But it's also important to remember people come here to shed something and be part of something new. Right. right? So in that sense, assimilation, yes, it's okay to insist that people come here and be Americans. It's okay right. to insist that they want to come here to be part of the fabric. It's okay to insist that they want to come here and learn English and know what the Constitution is and know who Thomas Jefferson was. It's okay to insist that because any other country in the world would sure as hell insist that we knew. In fact, no other country – there are very few countries in the world, Monica. This is something that 
I'm going to hammer as long as anyone gives me a chance. Yeah. We are, bar none, the most generous country in the world when it comes to immigration. The vast majority of countries in the world do not permit immigration at all. And the ones, many of the ones that do, they only allow, it's very racially driven, ethnically driven. Like sure. I couldn't become, a, I love Japan and I know some wonderful Japanese people, but I couldn't become a Japanese citizen if I wanted to. Right. Because they only allow Japanese to become citizens of Japan. Um, and in many other parts of the world, here's the kicker too, this cracks me up. Um, the left loves to look to Europe. They love to look to Europe. If you look to Europe, you would know that Europe is clamoring for what they call integration, which is basically the same thing as assimilation. It's a right. different word, but it means the same thing. That they've had to deal with these influxes over the last 10 years or so from Syria and elsewhere, Afghanistan, which is, they're familiar with some of these cultural problems because they've been taking root over the last five to six years. Sure. Um, but, but they insist on it, and they're having struggles with it. And so we really need to get back to the idea that you come here, you come here to be part of this. This isn't just, we're not just an ATM for the world's poor. Like this is a part of becoming part of this country, making the country better. You know, one other way I'd put it is the left doesn't say this, but we need to say this more. Immigration is about making America better. It's what makes our lives better. Right. It's not a welfare program for the globe's terrible governments, right. terrible dictatorships. <laughs> um, like we, we exist, we are compassionate people. That's what asylum is about. That's what refugee status is about. Um, but the reality is we can't just take everyone. And That's we right. have to have people coming here for the benefit of this country because otherwise it all goes away. Right. Agreed. Uh, okay. I see. I know many of you are still in the queue. Uh, I, I'm moving along. Thank you for your patience and definitely hang tight. I want to get to your questions. Johnny, you doing good on time, sir? John, are you doing good on time? Oh, me? Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, no, you're uh, good. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I can probably do like another 10, 15. Okay, that's perfect because I'll have to wrap I'm, up. I'll have to wrap up. My, yes, sir. Can I add something? So oh, yeah, of course. Go ahead. Really yeah. Okay, so what a lot of people fail to realize, let's take, I, I made a post about this not too long ago, like France specifically. France has a GDP the size of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. When people start talking about France as a world power, <laughs> You know, compare that to Mississippi. That, right. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the United States versus France and world powers. We're talking about one state of all the United States, Mississippi and France have the same GDP. So, yeah, they're real small. When you want to talk about immigration in Germany, Germany has to immigrate because they are not putting out enough kids that's to right. survive. That's right. So yeah. they, have, they are required to import human beings so that Germany can stay a nation state or it's going to collapse because of the age difference, the gaps, right. they can't survive without immigration. Right. And that's what people don't realize. Like some, some places require immigration to survive. So they're taking advantage of this. We're not one of those places that requires it to survive. And, you know, specifically we don't need in a uh, bipartisan, like he was saying, one party, immigrating people for a specific goal that's right so keeping that that's why i wanted to reinforce what john was saying like the size of those european countries and what they mean compared to the u.s yeah thank you thank you for that monica he hit on an important point and i want to he he's right about uh the the birth rate and growth and how the united states is different than a lot of other countries i mean I, i read a book this summer and i I believe it was called What to Expect When No One's Expecting. I forget the author's name. It was a really interesting dive into demographics and birth rate growth of nations. Um, 
And I remember basically the book got to the conclusion that saying the United States, one of the reasons we're a growing population is because we actually, it, it, there's a, there's a correlation between belief in God and a religious society and growth in families. Um, but what I would note is that the average kind of doesn't tell the story because if you split the party down the middle ideologically, the right is growing like gangbusters and the left is basically doing the American version of China's one child policy. Right. I mean, and this, this is why they're importing voters because they're dying. Mm -hmm. They are dying as a population and they need to overcome it. And the panic doesn't quite make it into the public, except when you see these policy conversations, you have to read between the lines. Why does a party that thinks that everyone believes what they believe have to go out and import 40 million people and make them citizens overnight? They've answered your question. They don't have support at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, John, to reinforce your point, I have six kids, so I'm doing my part. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, so I, we, we go to a Catholic parish here in uh, Prince William County, Virginia, and we've got like three kids, and we're like on the low end. You know, some of the families, <laughs> they have the shuttle buses. And I respect them because they're, they're doing God, literally they're doing God's work. Uh, and you know right. the left isn't having children, so they have to, that's why they have to steal those kids' brains from schools. That's right. Yeah, hey. my, my wife's refusing to get the Mercedes Sprinter van, and I'm like, hey, we got to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. Hey, John, don't forget, before you get off this call, and um, I want you to talk about the true definition of separation, right? Those who have been separated, family members, <laughs> And uh, yeah, I want to talk about some of the funny, the funny money. There you go. The funny money funnels. Exactly. Uh, I do want you to hit on that before we go. So, so keep that in your pipe. Uh, okay. You guys, I'm going to keep rolling through here. Now, here's what I need you to do. Okay. We're, we're going to pretend like I'm up against a hard break at the top of the hour and, and my show is going to be over. Okay. <laughs> and even though we do have a little bit more time than that, but not much, John has been very generous with his time this evening, but um, I want you to just get ready as as soon as I say your name and you're ready to speak, I need you to shoot a question out. I know you're filled with opinions and wrath and like you're just pissed like the rest of us are, or you, you have grave concerns and I understand all of that, but I really want you to harness this time with someone who is an expert in this field and I want you to ask the questions uh, you know that, that really need to be asked because there are a lot of people who are too afraid to raise their hand and ask on this type of a platform, right? And that's okay too. But I, I want everyone to have a chance to ask. All right, I'm going to go over here to someone who's been very patient, who I know for sure understands what it is uh, to 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 run. Well, at least I think you do. A political Cuban activist. Talk to us because I feel like our Cuban brothers and sisters are left out of the equation, out of the conversation a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hi. 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 I'm good. How are you, ma'am? Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Iskra. I came to the United States when I was nine years old. And, um, yes, we've been very hard at work, especially lately. Uh, today we got a, <laughs> a bad, bad news. Uh, they act, Nicaragua actually opened up, uh, visas to, ev- to all Cubans. Uh, every time the opposition gets strong inside our country, that the Cuban Red regime opens up some sort of escape and exodus. Uh, so we, we know we, we need your help. We need everyone's help. We don't want this to happen. Uh, we want people to come in the in legal way, okay? Uh, I came to the United States legally, and we want everyone else to come legally. Uh, we also don't want to, for you to help the, the regime by taking out the embargo. 
uh, they've already done do a good enough job in, to violate the embargo as it is. So uh, we need everyone's help. What can we do, John? Uh, well, thank you for your questions. And that's uh, there's I don't even know where to begin with all of that. Uh, I think one of the the biggest problems we've got is it's there's nothing we can do at the executive branch level. It's pretty clear this administration is as you know, hell or high water, they're going to find a way to let as many people in. Although I will tell you, ma'am, I don't think they actually want Cubans here. Um, and I, I, I say that, that that's not my perspective. I, I remember the only population that Secretary Mayorkas, who seems to be the only pro-communist Cuban American in the entire country, we managed to make him Homeland Security Secretary. Um, he made a statement saying the Cubans will not be let in. And, you know, if you want any more proof that this is about politics, then that's it. He doesn't want people who have lived under communism coming here because they're going to get here and say, well, these guys are communists, too. I'm not voting for them. Mm-hmm. So but everyone else is fine. But the Cubans, he's going to stand down. A serious question, serious answer to your question. I don't know what to tell you on the executive branch side. I will say, though, I think that the states, I don't know where you live, man, but like in basically every state in the union has an obligation to its people to provide for its, their security and their safety. Uh, and states have a lot of control. I think one of the biggest mistakes we've all made over the years is being a little lazy, uh, letting the federal government do everything, wanting the federal government to do everything. I mean, even even conservatives look a little too much to Washington, in my opinion. Uh, I think we are on the verge of a necessity, mm-hmm. which is a state sovereignty renaissance, where states basically have to say, look, we're in charge of this. We're in charge of these things. And feds, that's adorable. You really can't tell us what to do. I, I think states need to get control of their driver's license situation. Yep. Uh, I think there's nothing preventing a state from barring driver's license access to illegal aliens. There's nothing preventing a state from barring illegal alien access to pretty much any of the benefits the state taxpayers pay for. Um, states have to get back to their sovereign states. These aren't provinces. We're not Europe. That's like right. These are sovereign entities. If you had told the founders that they were surrendering their state's authorities to a centralized, massive federal government, they would have told you to go to hell, you know, like in a polite 18th century way. Mm-hmm. But they would have told you to go to hell. Right. Uh, and so we have states. They have sovereignty. They're separate from the federal government. They need to push back. And they can do a lot of different things on the security and the benefit front to shut this down. We call them pull factors. Um, It's one of the surest ways to basically reverse the flow at a time when we don't control the immigration enforcement mechanisms. When the states shut off the valve of goodies, people will turn around. That's right. That's good. You know what? I'm going to steal that from you. Um, I am going to steal. What did you just say? The state sovereignty renaissance. State sovereignty renaissance. I like it. Yes, I like it. Well, some because listen, when I run polls, um, you'd be amazed. I know I have been. How many people are like, yep, we're ready for a divorce. I mean, I've been shocked. And and that started like this summer where people are like, you know, balkanization, you know, I mean, they're ready to just completely secede, you know, uh, I mean, much less have a state sovereignty renaissance, right? And and I just kind of feel like on a, from a political level, you know, it feels like we're so overrun with people who are on the take, right? I mean, people, and I'm talking like bad, and they run on Republican tickets, and, mm-hmm. you know, they make a bunch of brouhaha about how conservative they are. They suck you in. They say all the right things. Uh, in the meantime, they've got backdoor deals going on. They've got muni bond deals going on that people will never ask about because they don't know about. They've got port deals going on, um, you know, promises made, promises kept with all the wrong people. 
And Americans, you know, because we're not extreme, listen, we get caught up in the politics and we think politics is nasty. You can attest to this. And ultimately, you know, we get left out of the governing conversation. And, you know, many people don't even know what the heck I'm talking about when it comes to muni bonds. Um, and, you know, and when you mention it, people's eyes kind of glaze over. I'm like, well, basically your cities are leveraged. You know, the soil you live on and that you call home, that you pay taxes to maintain and to have governed properly are leveraged. And yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens to our country in the next 10 to 20 years. You know, I'm not even looking at 2022 and 2024, to be honest with you, because I think we're way far past a political issue that we're dealing with. Um, hey, Monica, yeah. you know, I want to add to something you just said. So you said, not even looking at 22 or 24, you know, to me, I, I, the, if the last two years have taught us nothing, it is that the control of the Republic comes down to your community, like local control, state control, municipal control, run for school board, run for city council, run for mayor. Like those are the things that have quietly taken over that has made your communities the disasters they may be like I know around here yeah. very much the school issue is in the forefront and it's because people who thought normalcy was you know running things woke up one day and discovered a bunch of communists are running their school board and their kids are being forced <laughs> to right. read pornography right and they're like how did this happen it's like well because we were all asleep for a long time right. don't look to fe- I, I well fe- I'm not going to minimize the importance of winning federal elections I'm sure like some of the candidates we all know would prefer I not do that but I think that's a mistake to think that that's going to be a cure-all yep it's really about solving local problems and state problems tomorrow in your community. Don't wait for someone to save you. Save yourself. That's right. Okay, next uh, next question, Tilly Millard. Uh, hopefully you can figure out. There you go. What's your question for John? Thank you so much, John. Thank you for all that you do. Um, so we hear that personnel, the political appointees, were a major issue in the Trump administration, and they weren't for the president and true Trump supporters. So you have the most powerful man in the world, but if you have the wrong people around him advising him, this can and will sabotage his agenda. So from your time in the White House, do you know or can you share who in the White House or administration were working against the president? Oh, Tilly, that's a great question. Oh, great Uh, question. Let it all go, John. We we might need another show for this subject by itself, Monica, but for the sake of now and your your audience, I'd say this. I'd say uh, I know a lot of people out there have tremendous support for President Trump. I I was one of them. I had the honor and privilege of working for him from basically the minute the administration started until the minute it ended. Um, But I ran across quite a few very awful political appointees, some who were very senior and had a lot of power. And it, it was remarkable to me. Like, I look back on our time in the administration with sadness in the sense that the volume of things that could have been achieved would have been much more significant if everyone in the building had locked arms and been in the same place. But a lot of these people were not on his side. And I, I, I say this carefully. Uh, maybe another time I can name names. Not right now. I will say this. Uh, a lot of the people who were part of his problem are still very close to him. And I wish I could have like five minutes with the guy and just say, sir. You got a you got a small army of people at your back who would have done anything for you, but these ten people need to go right. because they don't. I hear and that. I, I hear I, that a I, lot. I, I, but you know, power spends a lot of time trying to get more power. Hard workers who care about the country are too busy working, and so you know, yeah. the self promoters tended to rise to the top, and that's kind of I guess the way it's always been in government. But right. it's a long list. I, I had, you know, the four years. It's a reminder. 
personnel's policy. If you don't have people who are in lockstep with the head of the organization, you're not going to succeed as much as you possibly could have. Um, and um, I don't want to say any more right now, but it's sure. a big subject that's worth considering. And hopefully, if there's ever a second, or rather, I should say, a third Trump term, um, there'll be far better people in the wings to take over these leadership positions and actually have the guts to do what needs to be done in many respects. That's great. A uh, great question. Uh, Tilly, I appreciate that. So, okay. Along those lines and, and listen, if you'll hang with us, I'm going to go to like two other callers, but, or people in the space. I'm sorry. I keep thinking I'm, I'm like, I'm reliving my live radio days. Right. And I'm just thinking like, oh, we don't have traffic reports in between all of this, but um, I do want on that, on that. Okay. I want you to go ahead and segue into, I mean, what really kind of blew my mind uh, when I thought, well, wait a minute, this sounds a little bit like human trafficking that has been mm-hmm. made legalized, right? Okay, so talk to us about the agencies involved. Uh, you know, like just throw it out there. What's what's really going on, particularly with our babies? Yeah, so um, I think you're asking about like the family separation. Thing yes. And, like, how this, okay, so one thing I think everyone needs to know is that. Um, our federal government is essentially fueling human trafficking and human smuggling um, because they've created this myth that these are people who are coming innocently to this border and it's, uh, we owe them access and help and aid. And then um, they come into the country and all's made well. The reality is that, um, you know, especially getting back to the whole $450,000 a person in the settlement, which shouldn't be happening. A lot of those Part of the justification behind the family separation policy was the, the understanding when we were in charge that a lot of these family units were fake. And there's an industry built around this. Basically, um, you had people who would rent their children. These people who lived in the Central American countries or elsewhere, they would lend, you know, for a fee, they'd lend their child to a cartel. The cartel would then use the child to like attach to unrelated adults. They put them, they send them to the border. They call them a family unit. And like our government was originally too sheepish to like do any, any due diligence. So they would just assume they were a family unit and let them in. Then what would happen was that child would uh, basically be recycled. They'd pop them on a plane and send them back to Guatemala. And then they would be reused again to help try and get another fake family unit in. All of this was facilitated by a federal government that was too weak and ill-prepared and unwilling to like actually figure out who people were. Um, and I don't want to get too much into that because I could talk for an hour about sure. that. However, I would say that when even in those instances where we found out it was a fake, mm-hmm. what would happen was we would take this child. That child then all of – sometimes they weren't even children, by the way. They were like 25-year-old MS-13 members pretending to be right. a 16-year-old. Right. And then we – what we would do is we'd say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, kiddo. Let's put you in a facility. And so they would take them and put them in um, a housing facility run by an office called the Office of Refugee Resettlement. It's part of the Department of Health and Human Services. Mm-hmm. And they would go to an ORR facility, and they would sit in that facility until a quote-unquote sponsor would come and request to be their sponsor. Well, many, too many of these times, these weren't uh, people who were family or friends. They were part of the cartel operation. They'd come and get them them up, put them back on that plate in the Guatemala, and that child would get recycled. Um, or if they were the, the other scenario, which is almost as bad, frankly, is that these weren't actually children, um, and that they were, in fact, you know, either they maybe they were technically minors, or maybe they were over eighteen, but they were lying, basically MS thirteen gang members. So we would take these people who were presenting themselves as these innocent children, putting them into these ORR facilities. 
they would either get claimed or they would get released at the age of 18. They should have been deported, but they weren't. They were released. Right. They would then go like circle up with their MS-13 buddies. Five years later, they'd kill someone and get indicted by the Department of Justice. And we would find out that that person was in an OR facility and had made gang threats for the two years they were there. and Nobody did a damn thing. Right. So if you, you want to know why we have all of the pain and suffering that human smuggling and human trafficking brings, you need to know that the federal government is funding it. They are part of the equation. Someone somewhere is making money off of this. Maybe not just the cartels. I don't have the answer to that question. All I know is that the federal agencies responsible for this are determined to continue this. They want this process to happen. They don't want scrutiny. They don't want to know who these children coming in are. They don't want to know who these sponsors are. Like we tried. I remember one story. We found out that there was very little interest in knowing who the people picking these children up are. Right. And we said, well, there's, there's this form that, you know, you have to fill out when you uh, pretend to apply to be a sponsor. Um, we're going to update it because it doesn't really ask any valuable information. And the response we got from some of the politicals, uh, in addition to careers, was, mm-hmm. well, that'll cost too much. Now, keep in mind, we have like an $11 bajillion federal budget, right? right. Uh, all, all of a sudden, like we're, we're rubbing pennies together for bed space to prevent a child from being given to a trafficker. Right. Um, but that was the bureaucracy. They were determined to facilitate human smuggling and trafficking. Right. Well, hey, I think so someone like who I, can. Oh no! Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I just. I, this is this. I, I know this sounds like hyperbole to your audience, but this is all too real, and it's one of those things that, having gone through this particular experience of all the other issues I've dealt with, mm-hmm. this is the one where I really, it really made me stop and think. God, they, this, our government just doesn't serve its people anymore. There right. really needs to be some sort of dismantling and review of everything. That's right. I agree with that. And someone else I think may agree with you, and I think he wants to chime in here. Uh, Adam, former Trump administration in the uh, U.S. Uh, Treasury Department. What you got? Hey, uh, not much. I'm just here to listen right now uh, and support while he uh, speaks. So I'm just really curious to hear from his perspective of all the problems. I, I caught the tail end of someone talking about how we needed better Republican hires. And that's, um, you know, that's a, that's a conversation we can have for basically hours a day. Sure. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, Adam is a hundred percent right. Personnel is policy. Don't ever forget it. And, you know, we used to, ju- I had some, the only way you survive in the crazy times of mm-hmm. government administration, presidential administration is your close friends and allies. And like sitting in a room for an hour with buddies sort of gets you through the day sometimes. And sure. we used to joke, like there were some really bad politicals we would experience. We came up with a formula. We said a, re- a bad political um, equals three good politicals because that the three good politicals then spend like the next week cleaning up, mopping up, mm-hmm. apologizing, repairing, mm-hmm. redoing, mm-hmm. <laughs> stopping, blocking. <laughs> Just, like the energies of three good people. Imagine if you didn't have that crappy appointee. How much more work you could have gotten? Right, there. right, um, right. You know, like, tra- uh, training the fire in the same direction. Yeah. So, you know, just last point on that is that, um, you know, like there's the deep state, which is real and it's, uh, the bureaucracy is heavily calcified. But, you know, a lot of Republicans are uh, extremely weak willed and cowardly. So, um, you know, it takes two to tangle on some of these things. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, and there's a spectrum too, Adam, right? Like there were people who we worked with. They were good people. That you know, they're what I like to think of as the coffee house conservatives. Like when you're sitting down with a cup of, with them over a cup of coffee, they sound like freaking Milton Friedman, you know. And then you put them in a position where they've got to tell a small army of careers what to do, and they fold. They just do what they say. I actually think those people are salvageable. They mean well. 
you know, they just don't have the leadership skills. You can train people to do that sort of thing. Um, and then you get the people who, however, they don't believe anything we believe in. Mm-hmm. They're just slick enough to get into the position and get a job. And, you know, then they get these jobs. They get sometimes usually disproportionately powerful jobs. And there's not a career employee they don't meet that they don't like. And they, they just like fold into the bureaucracy and they do exactly what the building wants. We, I used to refer to it as going building. Like they're just, you know, they might as well be a career. You might as well have hired a career <laughs> for that job because you've. Um, but then, you know, in there also, there were the people like us who fought like hell. And the problem is there weren't nearly as many of us and there weren't nearly as many of us high up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, you know, it's a lesson learned for next time. Yeah, definitely. All right. Two more callers. I promise I'm going to let you go. Um, but I want to go to somebody who's been waiting for a while. Cole, welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. How are you, Cole? Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Hey, Cole. Both of them, both of y'all being on Constantine, I wish I can meet up if you can introduce me. But we need American first politics back in right now. Everything needs to be reversed. Back to January 20th, we didn't hit the rewind button. Yes. How can we do that the quickest? Okay, there you go. I love it. How can we get back to America first the quickest, John? Cole, Allen, you're awesome. We love you. Thank you for chiming in tonight, sir. How do we get there? Thank you, Cole. Uh, You know, there's no one easy step. Monica, it's really just every day is kind of a battle. You know, you, I think our side is well-intentioned, but I always think that most of the people on our side are well-intentioned. Sure. But I also think the thing that makes us good citizens makes us lousy leaders, right? <laughs> like we're, we keep to ourselves. We like our friends and mm-hmm. our family. We don't pay attention to the wider world. We do what's in, our, in front of our faces or in our homes. Mm-hmm. The left is just run by Bolsheviks. Like everything they do is calculated <laughs> towards having power. They right. never stop. They right. never stop. Right. And so, you know, how much of that, it's kind of a, I don't want to get into a philosophical conversation, but like how much of, how much do we lose of ourselves as become, become more like them to win these battles? I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that we have to do more every day. Uh, Again, I get back to the local, you know, take over your school board, take over your city council, um, do things in your community to show that we're good people, that we don't need to be apologetic, that we're the ones who are making a difference in the world every day. Not every, not every difference requires a political office. That's um, true. But you know what? Too. I want to, I want to, I want to ask Adam something and then I want to get to one more person. So Adam, I mean, you're, you're the, you're the political, you're the policy. Well, you're the politico in this. And I've worked in politics for a number of years as well. And so I'm curious, you know, I said on something that crypto and you guys were hosting whenever we first met that, you know, I think it would be great if we, if we could actually put on our proverbial war paint and think in terms like we don't have to become like the left, right? But it, do you, would you agree with me that we just don't strategize to the extent that the left does? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of like a couple of different crowds that, uh, work in Republican politics for better or for the worst. And, you know, um, you know, one of them is very, uh, like the bulk of Republicans are very much on their heels, uh, basically perpetually. And, you know, this is, this is the, this is the thing is we don't drive policies. We don't drive interest. 
Like, uh, like for example, one of the one of the smaller, um, not so well known uh, uh, things that the Trump administration didn't get to resolve in our first four years was uh, the question of uh, France and uh, their tariffs and unfair trade practices with us. You know, and there's so much pe- people were uh, so gentle around dealing with the France issue. When in reality, basically, Biden administration just ripped the Band-Aid off and was like, well, you know, France, you're still stuck with us no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't drive. We're not aggressive enough mm-hmm. in pushing these things. You know, the MAGA agenda was, you know, uh, uh, ending mass immigration, you know, and uh, bringing back American jobs and manufacturing. And, you know, you have to you have to have the mentality that every week that you don't get something done, it's some is another week that. Um, basically, you, you're failed, right? Sure. And so that's that's the mentality you have to have for these things. This is the mentality that Democrats bring to the table, right. for better or for worse. We're the more ethical party. We're the people. We're, we have a lot of uh, good people, like genuinely good people involved. So you shouldn't be afraid to be activistic for the cause, right? Because of the fact that you are a moral person. So that's. I'll leave it there. So that's you guys good. Can keep, uh, Thank you. Chatting. Thank you. You uh, know, no, what Adam said, Monica, is, is yeah. correct. Mostly good people, and sometimes there was a gun shyness among them. The, the best people we had, just they didn't know what the limits were. They believed, you know, we. I don't even. One way to say it is, I feel like we, we didn't go as fast as we could have, as quickly as we could have, as hard as we could have, as hard as we needed to. Right. Because we took certain things for granted. And I look back. I remember, um, you know, you you walk in the, these buildings, these wonderful buildings, and you have the blessing to be there. These are hallways walked by the, some of our some of our greatest heroes and you think you have a lot of time and then you wake up one day in a cold sweat realizing it's the end of 2019 and you're almost through three years and that you feel like you haven't accomplished anything. And that's not true. You do, you accomplish a lot along the way. Um, but you realize that like the left, look how many executive orders Joe Biden signed on day one, right? 5,000 executive orders. Like (laughs) we, if we, if we had suggested that on transition team, uh, many people actually did, by the way, but that's a whole other story. There was a debate. Well, we do, do we do all these things at once? Do we do this one thing? And then this one thing and the little bit, at a time argument won out well then look what happened well let me ask you what what was argument that won out did it have anything to do with the second term um what do you what do you mean like if Uh, if you're saying let's for instance let's say we're both at the table right and i'm saying hey sir you need to go ahead and sign these things let's just kill it let's 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 just bum rush it and get it done and then other politicos in the room are thinking well hold on we don't want to lose the base we have and we're going to run again in four years like how much of that is going on monica that was absolutely a problem and you know there were people who were paid a lot of money for their alleged judgment who never quite showed it you know like the last year of the particular was rife with that problem where people were saying well this is you know this is a little too adventurous right why don't we just wait till we win re-election and i remember thinking well first of all this is a core principle that we talked about before so this is not something you quote unquote wait on and second of all these were people who were obviously taking for granted whether or not we would win and with all due respect i think some of these people with terrible political judgment were the reason we ultimately lost because who knows how many more votes trump would have gotten if we had pulled those things off that's right so that's right it's it's there's a lot of like, there's a lot of like 2020 hindsight in any situation, but especially yeah. in a political administration. And I, I have to confess, like I wasn't like in a lot of these rooms where some of the biggest decisions happened. I was working more in the bowels of a lot of friends and allies, and we saw these things every day. And I 
you wish you could have gone back in time and done this one thing a little sooner and done this one thing a little sooner. Sure. Um, it's a lesson learned. Well, I have we to tell you. We're lucky. Uh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, the last, only, all I was going to say is uh, if we're ever lucky enough to be allowed to win an election again, I think we've learned a lot of lessons about right. how to make sure that we don't get, you know, we don't get fooled again, right. so to speak. Well, I didn't realize you were up against careers, right? And I, and, and I guess I didn't understand the terrain, and now I do. And so it makes a lot more sense, right, where I'm not sitting at home just throwing darts at, the, at my GOP posters thinking, you know, how many more years do we have to go through this? You know, but understanding that you, you do have the appointees and you do have the careers and it really is a battle. And I'd love to bring you back on uh, or another friend of mine who worked in the administration and talk about that because people don't know exactly what the battlescape is. And so we do. We're just limited in our knowledge. You know, when, when this person said to me, oh, well, we're up against careers. I'm thinking, well, what the hell is a career? You know, and then the conversation morphs into this. Oh, got it. So, so the these are the calcification of the entire process of the entire country. Mm-hmm. You know, but it took me a minute to get there. I'm gonna take uh, one more caller, and we're gonna let you go. Wicked lefty, you've been holding for a long time. Yeah, I, I'm. I got to back up quite a ways to get to something that I to my question. Um, this is anecdotal evidence, but I have associates who are flight attendants in Brownsville, and I know a few vets that are um, located there. And John was saying earlier about the, all the flights that are coming out of there, where they're saying that these are families, where these flight attendants and my vet friends who've been on these planes are specifically saying that there's four or five flights going out a day, and maybe one in 50 have an ankle monitor for some reason. And they have a, a yellow manila envelope with their information in it. And on yeah. the back side, it is written, I don't, I am a refugee. Please help me. I don't speak English. And they are sending these, I think, and this is what I want to ask John about. I think they are sending them all across, like we're talking like South Dakota. Like they're sending these people all across the Midwest that don't even speak English to cities that cannot handle the influx of all of these immigrants or whatever you want to call them and so basically this they're, they're going to end up being seasonal farm workers they don't speak english they're going to get taken advantage of and it seems like the best argument for this is this is slave labor that the democrats are bringing in to our country to make into basically modern day slaves it, what do you think about that john uh i uh, you know, I think there's, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a lot to what you said. There's a lot in there that to unpack, but I think, uh, you know, in terms of like the, the impact on people and labor, I don't think there's really anything compassionate about putting people in a situation where they're going to be poor and they can't succeed. Um, I think this is largely why conservatives for a long time have been opposed to illegal immigration because it doesn't benefit someone to let them come here and be abused by an employer make less money, be forced to make money under the table, be abused. You know, I, I, I don't want to go off subject, but one thing I couldn't help but notice, you know, in, in the course of the last four years and even before, is there are a lot of employers, big employers that purport to be big hearted people who love refugees. Well, I discovered in working in this field that the reason they like refugees and they like to have um, asylees and refugees come to their communities is because they like the cheap foreign labor that doesn't complain when they're forced to work 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not born of compassion, it's born of industry. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm a free marketeer like anyone else on this call. 
but um, I, I don't see virtue in like importing poor people who don't fight back because they come from a world, third world country where if you fight back, your family gets killed. That's um, right. You know, I, 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 there's a lot of abuse in the system. And this is why, you know, getting back to the broader theme of immigration is about this country. It is. It, yes, we are inviting people to become part of the American family. You know, my last name is Adrasny. I'll let you in on a little secret. Didn't come over on the Mayflower, <laughs> right? Lots of all of our families came from somewhere. I know very few people who can point to the 17th century as to the time when their family got here. Right. Um, but we all were part of this family. Something about our ancestors wanted to be part of this great experiment. And they wanted something better and they were willing to leave a little bit behind to become part of something bigger in the future. That's right. And I think there's still a lot of people across the country, across the world, who should be here, but they've got to come legally. They want to. Uh, right. And we're not doing ourselves any favors by letting hundreds of thousands to millions of illegal aliens in. We're certainly not doing any favors to the country. We're not doing any favors to them. And we're not doing any favors to the world either, by the way. Like, this is one thing I, I this is a whole other subject for another time, but, you know, I've noticed, like, whenever there's, Whenever there's a Maduro, you know, or uh, mm -hmm. someone in, um, takes over a, a small country somewhere in Africa or South America, we all throw open our arms. And like, yeah, okay, so I agree with helping people who are persecuted. That makes perfect sense, except think about this. How many times has the United States, through the false guise of compassion, provided the safety valve for some of the worst people in the world? Amen. Like the, the ability to help a few people who are persecuted, I understand that. But you can't take every good soul out of every bad country because guess what? Bad people will run that country for the next 50 to 100 years. That's right. Maybe if some people can't come here, they'll fight and they'll be the presidents we see someday that we meet. Sure. And that's important too. And I, I think people lose sight of that. Um, I don't want to go off on a tangent. No, I you're think it's a great question. It's, but the, the labor question is important. You know, for all that the left talk about totalitarianism and equality. I guess now it's not equality, it's equity, right? Yes. Um, they, they just want cheap labor. They're really actually far more grotesque in their market principles than right. we are. <laughs> um, you know, meanwhile, like, we're the ones who are saying, hire Americans. Yeah, it'll cost you a little more, but at least you know they're not going to get abused because they're going to fight for their rights. That's right. That's right. That's good stuff. Well, we, okay, along those lines, I, I want to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold you any longer on this. For those of you who have just joined us, though, we've been talking with uh, John Zadrozny, America First Policy Institute's Director of Homeland Security and Immigration, former Trump Senior Policy Advisor on this very subject. And he's one of the many awesome guests who make themselves available to me and my audience on my podcast. And if you're in the spaces right now, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, end this space by ending my podcast as well. All of you who have spoken tonight, here's my legal disclaimer. You are on my podcast and it is nationally distributed. I mean, internationally distributed. So fun fact, I'm not going to edit. If you don't like it, sorry, it is what it is. Um, but I appreciate so much of, of your, of your time, just your passion for this, John, and your expertise, right? And that, like I said before, you make yourself available to us um, is... It's just I can't even put a price on that because it's hard to find people who are um, transparent. I know that's a big buzzword these days. Uh, and people who are accessible and who understand the system, right, the the, the labyrinth that, that we're all dealing the mechanisms of what we're dealing with. And I think a lot of times, especially in, this, in the Twitter sphere, things get lost in our little 200 or so characters where it is hyperbolic or it's emotional or it's just a headline. And so I, for one, am very grateful for your time, sir. And uh, But I want to read, I want to... 
Oh, go ahead. No, I, I just wanted to say thank you, Monica, and thank you, audience. And, uh, you know, last time we talked, I, re- I reminded you again, I'm a hopeless optimist. <laughs> so I, I think we all have a lot, despite the insanity in our current world, for which to be thankful. We've got the Thanksgiving holiday coming up in two days. And yes. I just wanted to wish you and everyone in your audience a happy Thanksgiving and a blessed time with family and friends. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to read something as we go out. Um, I think it's very important because, you know, listening to all of this <sighs> – hopelessness can kind of take hold, right? For some people where it's just a lot of information and it's knowledge and wisdom, but people feel like, okay, great. That's wonderful. We are being invaded and they are going to pay people illegally and they are trafficking our children and we are funding it as taxpayers. Now what? Right. And so I, it is the Thanksgiving week. It is the Thanksgiving spirit. And so I want to read something that a sister of mine who is on, who is in this space tonight, uh, she sent to me. And this was something that she feels God gave for her in October of this year. And it's titled God's Heart for America. And I want to read that. Um, God has amazing plans for America. He shared with me from his heart, he has favored America and that America is a gift and a light to the rest of the world. His judgment will come upon the land to remove the wickedness of the wicked and establish his kingdom and his righteousness. God has not forgotten America. It grieves God to see the suffering of mankind and evil that came upon our nation in this pandemic. His heart is for us to cry out on behalf of America, not just intercessory prayer uh, warriors, but everyone. He has plans to prosper and restore America in his love. Pray that God's mercy and grace will intervene for our beautiful and blessed country in Jesus, in Christ. And that's written by and shared with us, actually, by LaToya uh, Crindle, who is a sister in Christ, who is in New York City. And, uh, you know, and asked for all of us to pray for her on one of my Sunday morning church calls that last forever. Um, but they're great. And, you know, she's in the thick of it, right? And she is a beautiful black woman. She is a conservative. She's on fire for the Lord. And she's like, hey, you guys need to keep me in your prayers because I feel like I'm sometimes I'm standing out here by myself. So we're all going through it. If you're a patriot and you're on this call or you're listening to my podcast right now, we are all going through it. It is very important for us to keep a very sober mind about ourselves keep our spirits, you know, um, digesting the word of God and encouraging each other with hope, right? And, and thankfulness, actually, that we still live here. I know these are very scary times, uh, but God is still on the throne. And so I want to encourage you all to continue to rally around each other, um, you know, to glean knowledge from one another, and more importantly than anything, um, hope so that we can keep the oil in our lamps lit. Okay, guys, uh, without further ado, I am going to sign off from both all from all of you on this lovely space. <laughs> and I'm also going to say goodbye to my podcasters. Um, yeah, and thank you again, John. We love you. And you're always welcome here, sir. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Monica. Thank you very much. Have a good evening.